Let's turn to John's Gospel and to chapter 5. If you have uh, the Pew Bible there, it's page 1068. And we're going to come in at verse 16. So John uh, chapter 5, and we're coming in at verse 16. I think actually I'll read right the way through to verse 47. So in verses 1 to 15, we have a healing at the pool, and then uh, this is on a Sabbath. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. 
But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And we had a reading there. May God bless his word to us. As John moves on in his gospel, this next section, which includes chapters 5 to 10, is set in the context of various Jewish festivals, Passover, tabernacles, and indeed the weekly festival of Sabbath. At each festival, John is presenting the Jews and us with evidence that accumulates and that builds to say that all these festivals, good as they are, they are focused, they are fulfilled, they are completed, they are satisfied in this one who is before you, in Jesus. All the religious rites, all the rituals of life in Israel, they are satisfied in this Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' arrival into the world forced people to take stock to ask, who is he? And as we come into the mouth of Christmas, this is a good passage to look at. Because as people are maybe asking you, and hopefully they will ask, you know, how do you celebrate Christmas and so on, and uh, what's all the fuss about? You can say, well, it's about Jesus. He's unique, you know. In John 5, 1 to 15, Jesus does his, <clears throat> his third, as far as John's concerned, his third miracle, his third sign. And with each sign, John is using the sign, he's using the miracle to make a point about Jesus. And so this place, this uh, pool of Bethesda, uh, it's a place we visited, those of us who went uh, along that little trip to Israel in 2020, uh, we visited this place with all the colonnades and so on. And uh, at this place, Jesus did a healing, but as far as the Pharisees were concerned, it was It shouldn't have been done because it was the Sabbath. And Jesus had broken one of the 39 prohibitions of things, of categories of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. And so they're coming to him and they're surrounding him. A bit like like an unhappy football team surrounding the referee saying, are you really doing this on the Sabbath? Why are you doing this? Surely you've broken the law. And in verse 16, it says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Now, the Greek word for persecuted there is really a legal term, and it actually means prosecuted. And that will give you the flavor and the tenor of what we are looking at today, that this is a prosecution against Jesus. How dare he do a healing on the Sabbath? And so here we have this this chapter. It's quite an involved chapter, but it's a powerful one. Bishop J.C. Ryle in the last century uh, said this. This is a very profound and important passage. Nowhere else in this gospel do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, and regular statement of his own unity with the Father. 
his divine commission, his authority, and the proofs of his messiahship. Nowhere else do we find this except in this section of the gospel. So although this passage is not actually much preached on, I can very rarely have heard it preached on, it is actually one of the most important passages in Scripture. Because Jesus lays before us his immense claims to be divine. And what I want to do today, and I have 10 points today, okay, but I'm going through them very quickly, is we're going to look at five points or five ways in which Jesus testifies about himself, about his unity with the Father and the life that he gives. And then we're going to look at five points that he, uh, he says other witnesses testify about him. So if you're going to give 10 points of evidence as to who he is, so I want you to imagine you're in a courtroom. I want you to imagine that you're hearing the evidence as it accumulates and piles up as to who this Jesus is who dares to heal someone on the Sabbath. In verse 17, he says, well, yes, it is the Sabbath, but my father is always at his work, and I too am working. So here he's kind of identifying himself uh, with, with the father. And so the first point that we see is that Jesus, uh, in his relationship with God, the first thing he says is that I, I'm doing what my father does. He's identifying himself with the father because my father is still working on the Sabbath. He's still holding the world together. But you know what? I'm along with my father. I'm doing his work. I have complete dependence on on God the Father. What he does, I do. What he wants me to do, I do. It isn't that Jesus decides to follow the Father. It's, 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 he's unable to do anything else because the spirit of the Father is in him. Westcott says, perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. So here Jesus is obeying the Father's will and doing the Father's work because he can't do anything else because he is at one with the Father. So he has a, an obedience. He can only do what the Father is doing, but he also has the authority of the Father. He's able to do what the Father does because he is the Son. This relationship, of course, was affirmed by Jesus in the first words uh, that we have recorded in the Gospels of what Jesus said, and the first words are in Luke 2, 49. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Those are the first record words of Jesus when he was, whatever he was, probably about 12. So he is consumed with doing the father's will. So that's the first thing he's saying that testifies as to who he is. I'm doing my father's work. The second thing he says is that the father loves the son and shows him all he does. The father loves the son. And that love goes back, back, back before creation. John 17 and 24, Jesus says, this love was there before the creation of the world. The love between the Father and the Son is complete in itself. The Father, Son, and the Spirit were there in eternity. They were completely content and happy within themselves. They didn't need to make you or me. They had a content relationship, but they decided, they chose 
to make this world and to make us. And at special points in Jesus' life, this love of God the Father is affirmed for the Son. In Matthew 3, 17, at the baptism of Jesus, he hears a voice, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. So the Father shows the Son the secrets of his kingdom. The Father loves Jesus and he asks Jesus to show his work to us. That is the depth of the love and the pleasure that God finds in the Son. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, muses a little bit on this relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And he says, he says this, I wonder if there was a faint resemblance of this creative camaraderie between the Father and the Son when Joseph and Jesus worked together in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. I picture Jesus, about 15 years old, humming as he worked. The plank is cut with masterful strokes. It's carved with three small posts protruding in the appointed places. It fits perfectly into the joining board to make a solid bench. And Jesus smiles as he smacks the wood with pleasure. All the while, Joseph has been standing at the door watching the hands of his son. He sees the image of his own workmanship and his own life in the son. The humming of his son is the endorsement of the father's joy. And when they put their energy together to lift a finished table for the synagogue, their eyes meet with a flash of delight that says, you are a treasure to me and I love you with all my heart. And so Piper thinks that, that, that this creative love that we see in our own families and in our own relationships is just a small taste of the love that the father has for the son. And so Jesus says, I'm doing the father's work and the father is looking at me with pleasure. He loves me. And then thirdly, in verse 21, we see that as the father gives life, he's the life giver, so the son gives life. The son gives life just like the father. In the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 7, King Joram of Israel recognizes that he can't give people life. Am I God, he says? Can I kill? Can I bring back to life? No, there's only one person that can do that. That's Jehovah, that's God. And now Jesus is putting himself on the same level as God. He's saying, I'm doing the Father's work. The Father loves me and I bring life. What an, an amazing, what an awesome claim this is. And he would show this later whenever he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He's making this staggering claim. You say, I am making myself equal with God. You bet I am. I can raise people from the dead. I can give life. And I choose to whom I give that life. Then fourthly, he goes on to speak in verse 22 about judgment. Judgment has been entrusted to the Son. Now this was something new because as far as the Jews were concerned, of course God was the judge. He was the creator. 
But now Jesus says, yes, God is the judge, but he chooses to exercise that judgment through me. He chooses to give the judgment of all people to me at the end of time. This will be my prerogative. And so how we treat Jesus is a matter of the utmost seriousness. Because if we reject him, we are rejecting our judge, the one who ultimately will judge you and me. He will be the judge at the end of time. So again, needless to say, this is, you can see the steam starting to come out of their ears now because now he's saying, I'm, I'm on an equal part with God, I am the judge. And then fifthly, in, ter- in terms of in testifying about himself, the son is to receive honor. Just as the father receives honor, so God has determined that I will receive the same honor. And the Ten Commandments, they would have remembered that God said, you shall have no other gods before me. God is a zealous God and a jealous God. He will not allow anyone else to be on a par with him in in terms of honor and praise and respect. And yet Jesus is lifting himself and saying, well, I'm on that same level. In Isaiah 42, the prophet says, now God says through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. But Jesus says, that glory of the Father is my glory. So he drills into this. He's saying, in effect, we are one. And that is why the Christian faith is absolutely unique in faiths, because it proclaims the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We began our service by singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We, we, we sang about the three-in-oneness of God. And this is a powerful assertion of Jesus' divinity and his deity. He is making himself equal with God. C.S. Lewis, I keep reminding you of C.S. Lewis because he was so right to sum up Jesus Christ as either mad, bad, or God. Sometimes people put it in terms of he was either a lunatic, he was a liar, or he's Lord. Those are the only three alternatives. And that's why we've got to keep bringing before people. And that's what John is doing here. It's like an evangelistic uh, tract. And that's why many, many Christians use John as a tract, because in it, it's saying Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. He's on the same level. Jesus was forcing the Pharisees to a verdict. And he does the same today. Who do you say that I am? I'm doing the Father's work. He loves me. The Son gives life like the Father gives life. All judgment is entrusted to me as the Son, and the Son receives honor. It's an amazing claim. So this is what he presents to them in in the the first half of this. And then from verse 25 on to the end of this section, uh, he, he knows that he needs to bring more evidence because these are the testimonials of his lips. And so he needs to get evidence from others into the courtroom. Jesus is saying in in verse 25 to 30 that uh, the dead who hear my voice, they will rise. I can grant, verse 26, I can grant life in myself. Verse 27, again, I have the authority 
to judge. Jesus is qualified to judge us. And so let's think about this idea of Jesus as the judge. And there are five witnesses that Jesus now brings in to say, I am the judge of all the earth. Jesus knew the Old Testament. He knew the law better than even the Pharisees did. In Deuteronomy 19 and 15, it says, a matter, a matter must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He had just set forth his own testimony, but now he needs to bring in two or three witnesses to back up his claims. But he does more than that. He brings five. So let's look at these five witnesses very quickly. And by the way, the word witness is a very key theme in John. It's used 47 times in his gospel. So the first witness is in verse 33 to 35, and it's John the Baptist. We note the past tense here because probably John was dead by this time. He had been beheaded. He says John was a lamp, but he was a human lamp. He was a lamp that derived light from a greater source, and that was Jesus. Jesus is the sun, S-U-N. John was the moon. He reflected light from Jesus. But Jesus is the source. And so he says, you followed John the Baptist for a while. You liked what he said about repentance. But he pointed to me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the first additional witness, John the Baptist. And then secondly, uh, his second witness is in verse 36. The miracles that he performs, the Father's work that is being done through me. I have testimony even weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish in which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. If you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe the signs. And of course, John has seven signs, seven miracles in his gospel. So the first testimony is John the Baptist. The second testimony is the signs that I'm doing. Can you raise the dead? Can you change water into wine? Can you feed 5,000 from a few loaves and a couple of fish? And then thirdly in verse 37, uh, perhaps here uh, Jesus has in mind the, the voice of the Father at baptism. The Father who sent me, he himself has testified concerning me. You didn't hear his voice, but some did. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You don't hear his voice today, but the voice of the father is the third testifying witness that I am who I say I am. Fourthly, in verse 39, you love the scriptures. You read them thinking that in the reading alone you will gain eternal life. But these scriptures speak of me. The scriptures are testifying to the Messiah. They're testifying to all that's going to happen to me in terms of the crucifixion. Watch, read, because they're testifying about me. They are independent of me, but they're testifying about me. Warren Wearsby says, whenever we read the scriptures, do we read them just to gain knowledge or do we read them to get to know the author? Do they just give us a big head? Or when we read the scriptures, do they give us a burning heart? Because we know the one of whom they are written. 
And then fifthly and finally, he says, if you don't believe me, what about Moses? Moses was their hero. Moses had given the laws, all the laws that they delighted in, that they repeated, that they learned, that they put into their hearts and minds. All of this had come from Moses. And Jesus says, Moses spoke of me, verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So Jesus has set forth his equality with the Father. He is on the same level. He's exactly the same as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And he has emphasized that the prerogative of giving life and of judgment will come before him. He will be our judge. And the text is silent, but the Jews must have been beside themselves with fury. And indeed it says they were planning to kill him. Now, just as we wrap this up, there's 10 points there. That wasn't too painful. What about you? Okay, if you're in, in an Evans, I, I, I was a lawyer for, for eight years. I was frequenting courts uh, quite often. And you know there comes a point where a decision has to be made, where a verdict has to be given. And you've heard all the evidence. And you've got to decide for yourself. You can't decide for someone else. You've got to decide for yourself, who is this Jesus? Is he who he said he was? Or is he not? But if he is who he said he is, everything changes. The whole focus, the whole pivot of your life needs to be around Jesus because he's going to be your judge. And I ask simply, is it? Is your whole focus of your life around Jesus, having heard these 10 points of evidence? And this is the scandal of Christianity. We cannot hide from the claims of Jesus. He is God. If we reject him, we reject God. And although we cannot fully understand the Trinity, although we cannot understand all the implications of the Trinity, he is, Jesus is on the same level. He's God. And he asks for our obedience and our worship and our praise. Beware of worshiping the book or the building. Beware of worshiping the Bible or the building, the church building. It's Jesus. He's the one that we need to keep coming to and putting our hearts in. So in John 5, <clears throat> we are left in no doubt at all as to who he is and what he claims. You cannot say he was just a good man or he was just a good teacher. He doesn't allow us to take that route. He says you have to come to the point of saying either I'm mad or I am who I say I am. And so today, if you have not come to that point of giving your life to Jesus because he is who he says he is, can I urge you to do that today before you walk out those doors? To say, I've heard the evidence. I'm now going to give my verdict. And if you walk out those doors, you will only have two verdicts. Either Jesus is my Lord, 
and I will devote the rest of my life to serving him or he is not my Lord and I will devote the rest of my life to serving myself. Those are the two choices. As for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is the word of life. It speaks to us. It never returns to you empty or powerless. And today I pray that your word through your spirit will land in someone's heart and they will today for the first time say, Jesus is my Lord, my God, my Savior, now and forever. And for those of us who do know Jesus as our Savior, perhaps we need that wake-up call to realize what that means in our everyday lives for how we live, how we work, how we spend our money, how we behave, how we speak, how we share the gospel, how we invite people to church or to Cafe Explorer or to Alpha. So Lord, yes, just today, we reoriented ourselves, we refocus upon this wonderful Savior. There is no one like him, no one like him. Praise your name.